so this morning as we dive into the text, um, we're going we're gonna to skip the sermon discussion scripture thing today because let me just be honest, I have more content than I know what to do with and I don't know if I'm going to get through all of it. But also, I think this is a really big and broad conversation, and so for those of us in the church who would like to talk about this more and share their ideas or wrestle through some of these concepts that I'm going to talk about and present today, um, I would like to do a four-week book study going through the book Shameless by Nadia Boltzweber, and so depending on how many people sign up, we may have like a virtual option and then maybe one that's like outdoors somewhere. So if you're interested in learning about this topic or discussing it more for four weeks, reading the book or not reading the book, just like coming in here and what other people have to say about the book is fine. If you're like, I do not have space in my life to read a book. Um, that is okay, right? Uh, but if you're interested in being a part of that, you can email me at joshlee at imagodaychurch.org and I, I'm glad to find, once I get everybody who's interested together, we'll find a date that works and a time that works for the people who are interested. Um, and that's how we'll make that work. So if you're interested in being a part of that conversation, let's, let's continue that. Um, this morning's passage that you heard read is one of many passages in the Bible that talk about sex. Uh, the Bible talks about this topic a lot, a fair amount actually. And, and I, what, I, what I want to just give a disclaimer to this morning right off the bat is that like, I don't think that we should attempt to reinterpret or justify certain things that are said in Scripture to try to fit our, our modern or Western culture ideas of what that passage says to us. Um, I think it's good for us to own that, that uh, sexual ethics and ideas around relationships and sex have developed from the Hebrew Bible to the New Testament to modern uh, church leaders and our early church fathers and mothers as well. Like, and so I think the beauty of sexual ethics and talking about this topic is that we're always evolving, right? We're always learning more about ourselves, about other people, about the complexities of human sexuality. And so my, my hope isn't this morning to dismiss or try to, um, like, to, to mold and shape one of the writers of scripture to say something that I think that they, I want them to say, but instead to build upon um, the history and the teachings that have, that have been passed down, some that have been really harmful and some that haven't, right? And so that's my hope for this morning as we, as we dive into, into the text. Um, so how many of you have, have, ever, have ever flown to like Colorado and looked out a window uh, and as you're flying in and you see like the dry plains. Have you ever done this? I've only been to Colorado once and, and saw this. Yeah, maybe just a few hands at home for fun. You can raise it. Yeah, okay, so a few of us. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting when, when you look down and, and Nadia Boltzweber described something that, I, that actually like, caught me because I thought, oh, I've actually thought that before and that was interesting when she, she highlighted it in her book, Shameless. She says that, you know, it's interesting to look down and see that the crops were form, or are forming on some of the fields in circles, but they're square plots. They're forming in circles. And so she was perplexed by this, and so she did some research after she landed her plane to figure out, like, well, how, why and how is this happening? And, uh, and so she found out that in 1940, a guy named Frank Zybeck invented the center pivot sprinkling irrigation system. Basically, water irrigation sprinkler in the middle, and it would pivot in a circle and water the crops in a circle. But the thing is, is the, the, the crops were not planted in a circle. They were planted in straight lines. The reality is, is that the water only reached the circle, though. So there were the edges of the square fields where the water never reached. And so those crops often didn't grow or didn't grow very large because they were dependent upon the rain, which in dry plains isn't always as bountiful, which is why they have sprinklers in the first place. And I, I, I couldn't help and stop but think about some of the connections to this, right? I, I think for many of us... Um, 
we have been taught, the, 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 the central teaching of the church historically has been sex in the confines of marriage, right? Like that is the center sprinkler system in the middle of the irrigation, I mean in the middle of the field, right? Like that is the teaching. And I just want to say that that traditional teaching of the church, like it has, I have seen it bear beautiful, life-giving marriages and relationships. That teaching has been good. It has been true for some. It has worked for many. One man, one woman, monogamous marriage for life has often been the teaching of the church. But I want us to think about that there are some of us who find ourselves living on the corners of the field and whom that teaching never reached and whom that teaching didn't work for us, didn't apply to us, didn't seem to speak to us, wasn't maybe even for us, and we found ourselves wondering, okay, God, what about me? What about me when that teaching doesn't work for me? What about me? Why is there one application for all people? This doesn't seem to work for me. I think it's important for us to think about that this morning as we, as we engage this text. Is your, if your personal convictions this morning, I just want to say, if it, if it is sex inside the confines of marriage, I want you to hear this from me this morning. I, I think that is a beautiful, healthy, good, life-giving ethic. My hope this morning is for us to just teach as well about those who live on the corners of the field. My hope today is that the teaching of the church will reach those who are not just reached by the center pivoting irrigation system of the teachings of the church, but will also go even further. Maybe we can set up multiple irrigation systems <laughs> that reach people in places that maybe haven't reached, been reached before. So you may be thinking, well, like, who are these people on the edge? Who are these people on the edge? Because if, if you are receiving this sort of water and system that, that is good for you and your marriage is healthy and, and you've lived into these teachings at church and it's worked for you and it's been good, you're probably wondering, well, then, like, who, why wouldn't this work for everyone, right? So some of the people that maybe live on the edges are those who maybe identify as gay or lesbian or bi or pansexual or transgender or nonconforming. Perhaps those who are romantically or emotionally attracted to someone, but they themselves do not have attractions or desires for sex someone who's considered asexual, those who find themselves in mixed orientation marriages, those who find, them divorced, to find themselves divorced or remarried, those who find themselves widowed, those who find themselves single, those who find themselves enjoying serial dating, find themselves on the corners of this lot. Those who married too quickly to avoid being, burning with lust and maybe making a, a, a sinful decision, only to find themselves later realizing that this person they married, actually they didn't know all that well and they rushed into this and they don't know what to do now. Those who wait till marriage only to find out on their wedding night that this teaching that they've been taught about sex being bad wouldn't just flip on with a switch and they could all of a sudden start thinking that sex is good and so they couldn't perform. And they couldn't perform even until they had therapy to deconstruct construct the ideas they've been taught about how sex is scary and bad. Those who live on the, on the corners of the field, perhaps, are those who masturbate or those who don't. Those whose agency to decide for themselves if they wanted to wait to have sex till marriage was robbed from them because of sexual abuse or assault. They find themselves on the corners, not because of any choice of their own, but because the choice was stolen from them. Those who are in unhappy or sexless marriages, sorry. Those who had sex before marriage 
And those who find themselves later in life still a virgin and crippled by the fear and reality of what sex is or sharing that with someone that they have never before. Those who wish to never marry or never marry again or find themselves can't find someone to marry, but yet they still desire sex and physical connection. These are the people that find themselves on the corners of the field wondering, why doesn't the teachings of the church reach me? What does God say for me of how I'm to live my life? All of these find themselves on the corners, parched and wondering if God really loves them or if God has an ordained plan for them or if they really fit. I know for myself, I've, I've taken this journey and it's been long and hard. Um, I found myself in my mid-20s for the first time dating. I had dated uh, a girl once when I was in college. That didn't go too well. Um, we, were, we, were, we were very close friends. Um, my professor said, God may not give you feelings for all women, but he may give you feelings for a woman. And so who's the closest woman in your life? Date that person. Maybe it'll work. And so I did. And the day that she decided to lay one on me and give me a kiss, my body didn't know how to respond other than to throw up in front of her. Being honest. Shaking, nervous, so scared, not knowing if I'd ever really even be able to marry this woman that I couldn't even kiss. I found myself so frustrated, I decided I would just be single and celibate the rest of my life, and then in my mid-20s, reconciling my sexuality, coming out and realizing, okay, I don't think anything's wrong with me being gay, but I, do, I am scared of the people that do, but I'm going to do this. And so at 24, I started dating for the first time. I had no idea what I was doing, so what did I do? I went back to the drawing board of what my youth pastor taught me about how like, guys and girls were supposed to date when I was in youth group, and I thought, okay, I'll use that same thing for guys and guys. Maybe that, maybe that will work. It'll be translatable. I took the same teachings I was taught in youth group and thought, I'll apply it to this, and so I decided to become a born-again virgin, and I decided that maybe I could try to do this again. It was a little too late for me to wait till marriage, but maybe I could just hit restart. Didn't really work that way. I found myself frustrated, unsure of how I was going to find my life partner, who that would be, and what I was supposed to be looking for, so I did what my youth pastor taught me. I sat down, and I made a list of all the qualities I wanted in a man. And then I began to pray every day that God would give me that man on that list. And then I would start looking on the dating apps, which my youth pastor didn't even know existed when I was in high school, um, because they didn't. And I started looking, like, okay, for a person that fit these ideals... And I would go on dates with these people, and I did not like them, even though they fit these ideals. And most of them didn't have the one thing at the top of the list, which was, I wanted them to be a Christian. In reality, what's kept finding more and more people who grew up in Christianity, but because of how the church has treated folks who are same-gender attracted, they didn't want anything to do with the church anymore. Sometimes they were even angry with me for being a pastor still towards an organization and an institution that caused them such harm. I thought, how am I ever going to find the list? I became frustrated. This wasn't working. I started going to therapy. And I remember the day that I was talking about my list. I took it out of my pocket and I read it out to my therapist. This is what I'm looking for in a man. And God just won't seem to give this to me. I don't understand. And she looked at me and she said, well, read, read me the list. And so I read the list and she said, you know that list is you, right? <laughs> she said, you literally put all of your qualities on a piece of paper and are asking God to give you a clone. And I said, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. She said, let's, let's unpack why that might be. And I'm grateful she did because I began to realize with her that the reason I had put a list together of all the qualities I wanted in a man that was me was because it seemed safe. 
Because maybe we agreed on everything and we were alike and we, we, could, we could duplicate one another. We would never fight. We would never argue. We would never break up. We would never get a divorce. Maybe it would work that way, right? I had such little understanding of how this worked. And so that day we ripped up that list and I just opened myself up to the possibilities of what could be beyond the list. But the thing that kept lingering even as I started dating was that I was so frustrated with the teachings of the church because I felt like I didn't, they didn't, weren't working for me. I didn't fit into them. And what I was given as a guide, as a child, wasn't working for me as an adult. And it wasn't working for me as a gay man. And then I began to see, oh, sometimes it wasn't working for my friends who were straight and were taught certain things. And so as I began to see that, I thought, okay, well, maybe there's just some things about this teaching that maybe aren't applicable to everyone. But frankly, maybe more people live on the corners than just me. I found myself in the middle of this field, and the corner of this field, very frustrated with no morals, no sexual ethic, no compass. I threw it all to the wall. I had nothing to guide me. And that didn't work so well either. <laughs> it felt like I needed some ethic. I needed some rails. I just needed something to guide me. And on top of all that, I had so much shame and guilt about my sexual past that I was almost unable to perform in the present. Brene Brown describes guilt as an awareness that we have done something wrong or something bad, and shame is a belief that we are bad. I had come to the conclusion that my desires for sex were so bad that I was bad. And I turned inward towards myself. And I, as upon reflection, I've come to see that some of that is because of some of the things some of us, like myself, have been taught in the church about sex. For instance, how many of you remember the whole idea of, like, the rose petal, the, like, rose you were given? If you were given this in youth group, some of you might remember this. Given the rose, and then the youth pastor will pull the petals off, you know, somebody kissed you, you did something with someone else, you did something with another person, and maybe you get to the end of this petal, and there's, like, just, like, two little buds on it, and the youth pastor says... Is this what you want to give your spouse on your wedding day? Or, this was another activity we did, everyone spit into a cup. And then the last person who spit in the cup, the youth pastor said, do you want to drink this? Because this is what it would be like if you sleep with people and you offer to your spouse one day. It's like a cup that's been spit in and tainted by all the people you've swapped juices with. Well, I don't want to be a dirty cup. <laughs> or maybe the gum... The gum, the, the chewing of the gum, there was, that, there was that example. The purity ring, I remember slipping a purity ring on when I was in youth group because everyone else was doing it, but I knew I wasn't as pure and white as snow as Cindy Lou next to me, but I, I knew I had to do it, I had to pretend, because if I didn't, they would know. And the shame that I felt in that moment. I began to realize that the reason I was experiencing all of this sexual shame was because I was told that if I did anything outside of the confines of marriage, I was a rose with one petal left. I was a dirty glass with spit in it. I was gum that was chewed up that had no flavor left. I had to do a lot of internal work. I had to work through those things. And, and I know that there's more people who've had to experience working through those things than I have because those who have experienced sexual assault and abuse, you didn't even have agency in deciding those things. Basically what the church told you was because someone took and stole those from you, you are a dirty glass. You are a, you are a rose with one bud and you didn't even get to make the decision in that. 
And what man or woman's going to want you after you've experienced that? That's the messages that we've received from the church. Harmful, painful, not helpful, not healthy, hurtful. But that's what happens when we teach something from the center and don't realize there are people who live on the edges. And sometimes people who live on the edges that did not go and go, go to the edges on their own, but that's exactly just where they were planted. There has to be a better way. There has to be a different way that's healthier, that, that meets not just those who the irrigation system meets in the center, but those who live on the corners. I'm going to tell you, it hasn't been easy to find a healthy sexual ethic and a healthy image of myself and my own ethic again. But it's been life-giving. Emily Joy says in the book Church 2, she says, we can't jump out of one sexual ethic into another one without carrying some of the baggage and perhaps at times trauma with us. It may take time for our bodies and our minds to reconnect. I'm still reconnecting. I may be reconnecting forever. I may be developing and have developed a new sexual ethic that may continue to hopefully evolve because I'm always open to what God and others are teaching me around me. But at the same time, I know that there is still, my brain has been wired in such a way through trauma that I still work through those things. I am still rewiring and I am still triggered. I am still having to tell myself that I am loved, as the song we sang today. That I am beautiful. In the, in the, movie, in the show, Parks and Recs, uh, they refer to the to- topic of uh, purity culture as the opposite of a horrifying sex done where people put their body parts anywhere they want with impunity. Yikes, okay? Like, and to me, that could be an extreme reaction sometimes to the other. There's, there's, there's like, there's purity culture extreme, right, where it only fits in one norm for all people. And then there's this, where it just seems everything's off the rails, right? Reality is, is, is we've heard these types of references, like driving is dangerous, or knives are dangerous, or friendships are dangerous, going to church can be dangerous, <laughs> But yet, all those things, even though they're dangerous, we we teach ourselves and our children how to use them in healthy ways, right? And I want you to hear this morning, sex can be dangerous. It is not just this sex done where you just put body parts wherever you want without any regard for other humans or for yourself. It it shouldn't, it can't be that. It is something that that can give great joy and great pleasure, but it is also something that can cause incredible harm if used haphazardly without any thought for the other or for yourself. So, so what is the ethic? Well, here's, I'm going to give you this morning the three C's because I grew up in evangelicalism and that's how they taught us to preach, right? The three C's because it's rememberable. Um, so I'm going to give these to you, but here's the thing. This is, these are the ethics that I have formed, but this doesn't have to necessarily be your ethic. Maybe, maybe my ethic isn't, isn't even broad enough that it doesn't reach some, other, some, some corner of the field, but I hope that my ethic is broad enough that it will reach those of us who find ourselves on the corners of the field. Or those of us who know folks who live on the corners of the field. Or those of us who will have children who live on the corners of the field. So I hope, I hope that this ethic is guiding for us today. So I'm going to start with just giving you the three C's and hopefully they get ingrained into your head. Consent, care, and communication. Consent, care, and communication. Let's walk through these quickly. Consent. So sex inside the confines of marriage may be helpful, but it doesn't go far enough for all of us. It just doesn't. Emily Joyce says that framing consent as always no in singleness and always yes in marriage is a recipe for abuse and a toxic relationship. I cannot tell you the amount of times I have had conversations with with women, uh, not in this church, but in the churches I've pastored in the past, 
that have been very uh, challenging because women who chose, who thought they had to have sex with their spouse because they were taught to submit to their husband. And if their husband wanted that, they were to give that to them. Also were taught that if they withheld from their husband, that would be the reason maybe that their husband went and had sex outside of infidelity, outside of their marriage and caused infidelity and broke their covenant. And so, I just want you to know, if, if those are the reasons you're engaging in sex, and if, you, if you've had this argument, and you've had this tense relationship, this, this tense marriage, and then all of a sudden you're expected to go back to the bedroom and engage in sex, um, uh, that is not consensual. If you're having sex out of obligation, out of duty, out of, uh, out of preventatory measures for your spouse, that's not healthy. That's where we're going to talk about later the key of communication comes into a healthy, healthy relationship because you can't consent to a healthy sexual engagement until you're fully communicating and working through those things. And if you can't control oneself until you've worked through those things, that's a different issue that the woman doesn't have to own for that. This idea that, that we see sometimes in Scripture that, 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 that the man is the, the head of the wife and that she must submit, this type of unequal power balance creates often a rape culture within marriages and relationships that sadly doesn't get named and needs to get named. Consent much must be equal. It must be absent. It must not, it, consent is not just the absence of a no, it is a confident yes. And, and consent requires power dynamics to be equal. And if one has power over the other, that is not sound very consensual to me in any way. Consent, sometimes, I think it's important to remember that in the, in, the, in the heart of Me Too and Church Too movement, I think it's important to remember that, that sex doesn't always have to just mean even penetration. Consent goes beyond that. It, 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 it trickles into sexual harassment. I read a story in the book Church Two that talked about a young woman who was a camp counselor at a Christian camp. She's wearing kind of a, a lower cut shirt and, and short shorts because it was 90 degrees out right at this camp and she, she obviously shouldn't have to police her body and cover up like a nun while she's at this camp so that other boys wouldn't chase her around as they did. Putting ice down the back of her shirt chasing her with water guns so perhaps they could see what it looks like underneath when she's wet. When she decided to then go and report this to the camp counselor who was the head camp counselor for the week, the camp counselor said this to her as a response. If you dress like a cute little plaything and present yourself as a toy, then boys will be boys and they'll play with that toy. No penetration occurs here. But this is sexual assault. This woman tells in the story that she said several times very sternly to stop that. She was not playing. Did they stop? No. But when boys are told that if a girl dresses like that, they can have their way and do what they want. Yet there is no reverse on the other side. All that creates is an unequal power dynamic. All that creates is unhealthy sexual ethics that lack any consent. Consent, again, requires power dynamics to be equal. And so for me, I've come to see that, that consent, uh, you know, it obviously cannot occur with, with an animal. It cannot occur with a child. And quite frankly, I think it's really important that we teach our children this. One of the things that I thought was most beautiful I saw play out one time uh, was a little boy who was getting ready to, to leave with their family uh, to go home for the day. 
And the grandpa and the grandma said, come give grandma and grandpa a hug. And the little boy said, I don't want to. And the mom said, you don't have to then. Because all that, that sometimes can lead to is if the child feels forced to kiss or give a hug to grandma and grandpa, then where do they know the line is when uncle or teacher or whomever it may be decides that they want to do something? And because they're the respected and adult figure, you know you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to give them the hug or kiss goodbye or whatever else they then want to do. They don't know where the line is. Instead, teaching our children at a very young age, agency over their own body. If you don't want to give that person a hug or kiss goodbye, you don't have to. If you don't want them to touch your body, then you don't have to. If you want to, you can. It's there. But teaching our children at a very young age, that is important because it allows them to have that agency over their own bodies and it helps them to know the importance and value of consent. Consent starts young because so often we don't know and then we get into adulthood and we look back and we go, wow, I didn't even know I could say no to that. I wish someone had told me where the line was. Care, the second point here. Consent, care. So Church Father Augustine, he's a North African bishop from the theologian from the 4th century that, that taught and, 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 and instituted a lot of the core beliefs that we believe within Christianity today. Kind of interesting to, to find out that he, uh, he invented these sort of theological concepts around like original sin that you see in the Bible, right, where Adam and Eve are in the garden. And he invented the concept of the fall from grace, and he also invented this concept that Satan was the snake because the story doesn't tell us that it was Satan. We, we interpreted it that way, right? And so he's the one who first instituted these interpretations. And they come out of his writings of the Confessions in 397 where he basically talks about how his dad took him to a bathhouse or a, to a, a community bathing area, bathing area when he was 16 and he got an erection and he didn't know what to do with it. And he was so ashamed and embarrassed because he said, I don't have control over my body. How did this happen? And he writes in the Confessions of 397 that he believed the reason he had the erection was because Adam and Eve were in the garden and before Eve ate the apple and messed everything up, Adam was able to control his body. But then once Eve ate the apple, which it doesn't even say it's an apple, we say it's an apple, it just actually says a fruit. And that's when all of a sudden he couldn't control his body and he saw her naked and she saw him naked and all of a sudden he couldn't control his body and that's when everything went awry in the world and there was original sin and the fall from grace. Where did it all stem from? His own shame he was experiencing. His own shame he was experiencing in his own body. Now I'm not saying we need to do away with those concepts or those ideas but I do think it's important for us to remember and to think about that all theology is formed based on our own experiences and our own understandings of reason and logic based upon the shoulders of those who've come before us and will be built upon the shoulders of those who come after us. And sometimes I think it's important for us to stop and to think about the fact that sometimes the things we've been taught about sexual ethics or about our own bodies, it isn't, it isn't the most caring thing for us. Maybe it felt like the most caring thing for that person who formed that or at that time in history, but it may not be where we are now. And what one person needs for the care of their body may not be what the other person needs for the care of their body. And that is okay because we each get to decide what our bodies need. Maria Boltzweber says, if the teachings of the church are harm, harm, harming bodies and spirits of people, we should rethink those teachings. And so that's what I'm inviting us to do this morning is, is for us to, to, to ask, have there been teachings that have been harmful? And if so, maybe we need to rethink them. And maybe there are certain teachings that haven't been harmful for you, but they have been harmful for others. And if they haven't been harmful for you, that's okay. 
Because you are in your body and you get to decide what is caring for you and what is it not. What, where, where I think we must draw the line and where, where, where we must create a greater, larger sexual ethic and a more generous orthodoxy is to realize that what might work for us might not work for all, everybody. So I know sometimes the narrowness of a sexual ethic can, be, can, can sometimes be more sinful than the sex itself, actually. To act in a caring way in our sexual relationships, I think it brings us closer to the heart of Jesus. If, if we're going to engage in sex knowing this will cause harm, it is not, and it is not the most caring thing for both people involved, even if both people are consenting, then I would say it's probably best to abstain. I can think of instances where pressure has occurred for someone uh, to have sex who didn't want it, and they were pressured. Well, I would say if you're having to pressure someone to have sex, then you're not engaging in sex in a caring way. I've seen instances before where individuals in committed relationships, maybe somebody who's in a marriage and someone who's not, the person in the marriage chooses to have sex with the person who's not in the marriage, and they break their covenantal vows they've made to an individual. And the person who, I would guess you would say, sometimes say the other man or the other woman, says, well, it's not my fault. That was their decision. They got to do that. They can choose to break that if they want. I'm just a willing potty in it. I would say that that's not caring. I would say that, that you have to realize that sometimes sex does go beyond just your body and beyond the body that you also are sharing sex with. But the people whom that person's connected to and the ways in which your choices can cause harm to those connected. So I would say that this is like the caring part of this ethic is where we have to think about infidelity and not just those who are breaking the covenant, but those who are aiding in breaking the covenant knowingly. The list could go on. I could continue to talk about what I think caring looks like, and I, and I hope we do, do that to do that more in our um, book study that I hope some of you engage with. But Nadia Boltzweber says this last thing about caring that I think is really important for us to help think about it. She says, a sexual ethic that includes, con that includes concern means seeing someone as a whole person, not just as a willing body. Sex can bring warmth, but it can also be chilling. Sex can bring connection and also, also alienation. Sex can, can provide insight, but sometimes confusion. Sex can empower, but sometimes provide humiliation. And we can teach our kids and ourselves that every single one of these things are possible in and out of our marriage, in straight and in queer relationships, in the young and in the old. Sex shines and flickers, and it rages, lights, rages, lights, warms, and burns. I think it's important to remember that all of these things that we're talking about sexual ethics can happen in a varying amount of situations. Sometimes the teachings that we're taught that sex inside of marriage, that's just the safest place, that's the only place it can work, that's the only place you're going to be most protected, I think we can hear from what we're talking about today. That's not always the case. That there's so much more to think about than just sex is wrong outside of marriage, sex is good inside of marriage. Because some things so painful that lack any care at all can still happen within the confines of marriage that lack consent even within the confines of marriage. The last piece here is communication. Trauma, I think, often rewires our brains and a partner who is patient and understanding enough to often re to, to wait with you and to work with you as you rewire and rediscover a healthy sexuality is key to a healthy sexual ethic. We all probably in some ways or some forms have received messages about sexual ethics and when we get with someone else in a relationship or uh, in a partnership in, in that way, we must be patient with one another. We must be willing to hear one of those experiences and insecurities and difficulties and not try to rush past or brush under, but to walk with each other. 
Because I think in doing that, that is when we will get to a healthier place. So, and I think that communication requires us to be willing to talk about what are our boundaries? What are our boundaries? I've lost some pages of my sermon. And um, maybe they didn't print. And they're very important. And you're praying for me right now, right? Um, thankfully, it's right here in front of me and my computer too. The sexual ethic of communication is uh, what we'll talk about here as we wrap up the message. When I talk about communication, I mean an open conversation about what you are and aren't comfortable with, what your sexual past and history is, and what that means for your present sexual engagements. I think it's important that you know that you have, that you have the agency to make these decisions for yourself and your relationship. You get to decide what the rules and the boundaries of that relationship are, and you're inviting someone else to also respect those, to not feel rushed or pushed. In the book Untamed by Glenn Doyle, she talks about uh, this idea that how women are often given the mandate to be desirable and not to articulate what they need to be pleasurable. And women aren't supposed to communicate what's pleasurable, they're to be just desirable. And I think that it's important that in order to have a healthy sexual ethic, um, particularly for women who have been taught this message, I think this is an invitation for men to realize that, hey, women also have a desire. Or for two women in a relationship, women also have desires that transcend maybe what your agenda or hopes are in sex. They have hopes. They have ideals. They have preferences. And to engage in these open conversations because sometimes women just don't even share it because they've been taught not to because they've been taught that's not the objective. Here's some other questions to ask as you begin to engage in, in, in healthy communication with a healthy sexual ethic. What hurts and what brings you pleasure? What hurts and what brings you pleasure? What is your preference usually today or this week or next week? What would you, where would you like to see your sexual relationship go to? Where are you comfortable with it being now? Are you more comfortable in a dominant or a more submissive role? What does this look like for you? Talking openly about these things I think are important. My hope is that we as a faith community can expand the reach of a sprinkler system with the church that makes space for people to see those to whom don't fit in the traditional teachings of the church so that there can be a sexual ethic that is grounding and guiding for everyone. And so maybe I'm going to post these this week, but if you want to write these down, I think these are, these are four questions that I think will be really helpful for you in communicating what you hope to get out of a healthy sexual ethic um, with your, with either just within yourself or with a future partner or a present partner. What are your personal values? What are your personal values? Write those things down. Most people have three or four things that really guide them. What does sex mean to you? What do you want sex to mean to you? And then what are healthy boundaries for you right now in this season of your life? Joshua Harris, I invite the worship team to come, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye, talked in a podcast recently with Nadia Boltzweber about how he no longer believes the things that he taught that was all the rage in the 90s. It's the 90s, right? I think it was the 90s. I remember the book very well. He wrote this book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, in essence, encouraging people to pretty quickly get into relationships and make commitments with the promise that if you did this, if you waited till you were married to have sex, that you would have God's best for you. And Joshua Harris says in the podcast that he didn't believe that people who didn't wait till marriage wouldn't have, like, you know, good sex or a good marriage, but they would never have God's best. It would always be a little bit short 
of God's best. And he comes out in his podcast and apologizes and says he now realizes after his own marriage challenges and his own uh, witness to the ways in which this ethic so didn't work for so many people and the damage and harm that it caused in many ways in which I've highlighted some of today. He realized that this didn't work. It didn't work for everyone. His ethic was too narrow and his theology was not generous enough because there were plenty of people on the corners of the field who this didn't work for. And reality is, reality is, is I want us as a church. My invitation today is for us to, to cast the idea of marriage to the corners of the field and to shame marginalized folks who communicate that most caring thing for their bodies is to only consent to marriage is maybe not the only sexual ethic that exists in the world that works for people. But instead, my hope is that we can embrace some new irrigation teachings of the church that can give space and life to folks who find themselves seedly planted on the edges of the field. My hope is that we can be people who allow consent, care, and communication to guide our sexual ethics, yielding a good harvest and a healthy sexuality for all people. My hope this morning is that this message is the beginning to healing and to health for ourselves and for those to whom we worship alongside, for those to whom we will raise from little children to adults who will have big questions. Consent, care, and communication. My hope is that not just this church, but the world could grasp, could grasp that. Because I think we would be healthier in our bodies and we would treat other people's bodies in a way that would cause less trauma and pain but would give more groundedness, wholeness, and life. These bodies are beautiful. They are gifts. May we use them and steward them well, but may we also use and steward others' bodies well as well. I think if we do that, something beautiful can bear forth from that, and I think a beautiful square field will come forth.